Hey everyone, welcome back to Fill the Teapot, a podcast sharing stories and conversations from inspiring change makers, brand builders, and voices from the Asian American community. I'm your host, Saruchi Avasli, and in each episode, I sit down with a guest I'm inspired by to chat about their relationship with identity and culture, what inspires their work, and everything in between. In today's episode, I'm chatting with CEO and co-founder of Methodology, Julie Wynn. While Julie started her career at JP Morgan and worked for a venture-backed tech startup as VP of Marketing, after learning about the power of food in healing her own health problems, she took all that she learned and co-founded Methodology, a premium food delivery service for busy professionals who value wellness and with a mission to heal bodies and minds using food as medicine. In our conversation, Julie and I talk about how methodology started and what their original menus looked like, how she finds inspiration from all around the world in different cuisines, and the joy of solo traveling, and what she's learned over the last year. Julie's aspiration is to know more about food than anyone else, and that's an aspiration that I absolutely love. I'm a personal fan of several of Methodology's menu items, including their cocoa mix, which Julie and I do talk about in today's episode. Now, as a heads up, Julie and I do discuss health, diets, and clean eating in portions of today's episode. So please think about how this kind of content might impact you and please take care of yourself first. We understand if you need to sit out for today's episode and we look forward to having you back next time. If you're sticking around, I'm so excited for y'all to hear this conversation. So go grab your cup of tea and let's get started. start every episode by talking about identity and, you know, identity changes over time and it influences who we are at different stages of our life. Um, so I'm curious, kind of going back to the beginning, what was your relationship with identity growing up and how it's changed, you know, over the years and over time? That is a great question. I love this topic. <laughs> uh, yeah, identity definitely always changing. I think, you know, one thing that I thought of that has definitely been constant is I've always been like the smart, nerdy person. And I think so much identity is created by the way your parents speak to you, right? So they always told me, you're so smart, you're so smart when I was a kid. And so I always just doubled down on that and worked so hard when I was in school. Like I was the kind of kid in high school, I would wake up at four, 4.30 in the morning, study before school, right? And I stayed up till one or 2 a.m. every day with all the extracurriculars and the studying after school. And that was just a huge part of my identity smart, you know, not cool, <laughs> definitely not cool, no boyfriends. Yeah, so I, that was almost the, that was almost the only part of the identity I had, right? And so then it actually was really hard when I went to Stanford and wasn't even like in the middle as far as intelligence at Stanford. People were so smart there. And I think that I had an identity crisis and became frankly like depressed to the combination of not having that identity anymore my poor diet choices that I started making around age 17, 18, were starting to add up. So anxiety, depression, loss of identity, and not knowing what career path I wanted to do really, and or how to think about that. And so I probably had like, yeah, an identity crisis. If someone had met me in college, they would have never, they would probably wonder, how did you even get into this school, right? Cause I was not, studying that hard. I was partying really hard. Didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I think that it all changed once I started working. Um, and then just realized that I guess I just don't like school. First of all, I love learning, but I really don't like the structure of school. There is a I like distinction. Being... I think people think they're the same thing and I'm like, they're not. Yeah, exactly. Like, cause I think about my, like my co-founder who never went to college. He's one of the best learners I've ever met. The fastest learners. Right. So it's crazy. I got into the working world and just really thrived from my very first job at JP Morgan and just loved working and formed like a, this new identity around, I guess, career woman and started to tap back into the dreams that I had when I was a kid where I just, I always, as a kid, fantasized about myself wearing white pantsuits, you know, that were perfectly tailored and running a business. Like I never once had a fantasy about me wearing a white wedding dress, walking down the aisle or raising kids. That's so funny. I've always had very <laughs> unusual fantasies around like, I'm going to build a business. And, and I've been entrepreneurial since I was a kid. Like I remember, you know, I think entrepreneur has been a part of my identity or, or hustler. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't think about that way, but I used to 
run around the neighborhood, picking flowers from all my neighbors, turning them into bouquets and selling them back to them. Right. Like, so I've been doing things like that since I was a kid. Um, yeah. In the working world, just really leaning into the identity of career woman. Now, as I've gone older, I'm 38. There's more around teacher, mentor. I still feel like I don't know shit in general. So I'm always shocked when my mentees find the sessions helpful. But I'm like, all right, if you want to keep meeting and find it helpful, let's keep doing it. But I, you know, I, I feel like there's so much I don't know, but I try to, because people keep giving me positive feedback, like, uh, yeah. Julie, you should teach more. You teach more on the Instagram, really like take the time to do that. Um, so yeah, these days it's career woman, teacher, um, not the typical things. Like I, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm single. I'm not a mother at this age. I'm not a wife. I don't have those pieces of identity. I don't even think that they're necessarily like goals. <laughs> um, because I'm just really focused on building the business right now. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's, I think that's really cool. And I think going back to kind of what you said too, where it's like, Hey, as a kid and returning back to these like dreams that I had as a kid, like how did your parents kind of influence that? Cause you know, it's like, were your parents entrepreneurs? Like, did they ever like, um, push you to think like culturally in that way? Like how did that all come together and how did you kind of connect those dots as well? That's a good question. They, they were, my dad was entrepreneurial actually. So okay, he yeah. did start businesses at different points in his career. Nothing really ever took off. Um, my mom, very conservative, would never start a business. Even to this day, actually, if you talked to her, she would probably say, I would prefer that she would quit and go work at a big company like Google. <laughs> right? Versus like, I don't know why she does this crazy job. And she'll even say like, why don't you just quit and go work for your best friend Ramit instead? <laughs> like, so she just thinks it's so risky and insane. I think a lot of us, especially with like immigrant parents, right? They, there's, they're so risk averse because they gave up so much to come here and they did it so that we would have this like stable life. And so they're like, why would you do anything so risky? It's crazy. But it's like, you did that. You took your risk so I could take my risk. Exactly. I, I totally understand their point of view, but yeah, no, I think, uh, the entrepreneurial stuff did it. I don't know. I don't think it really came from them. It's, I almost feel like I was born that way. I don't know. It's hard to explain yeah. it. The parts of my identity that I'm starting to learn again yeah, are things that I just, they're just character traits I've had since I was a child somehow. I know it's interesting. I think how it all comes back to that. And I know the more conversations I've had, like um, yeah. so many people go back to the things that they just, they loved as kids. And it's kind of like reframing it, mm -hmm. you know, in our roles and jobs exactly. and lives now. I love yeah. that. I'm just even remembering the way I used to play. Like I would play the role of teacher in the classroom, business owner. You know, I never pushed, brought a little doll around and said, I'm a mommy and this is my kid. Like it's really fast. I wish kids today have all these videos of what they were, you know, what they're like now they'll be able to go back and watch, but there's no record of what I was, you know, I really have no record of there, there are no videos. And so I just have a couple of scattered memories here and there. And my parents just tell me I was a really demanding brat, <laughs> like always had to have her way, which, <laughs> and that's a part of another reason why I'm an entrepreneur. Like I can't stand when the world isn't the way I want, I want it to be. And I'm willing to like put the work in and sacrifices in to like, reshape it in the way I want because it just annoys you know I, I literally can't stand when things aren't the way I want them to be like in any aspect of my life or the world it really bothers me said like a true entrepreneur so on that note I guess what was kind of the catalyst moment for you where you were like okay all of this culminated together and we're starting to think about methodology post you know corporate America co post those more stable quote-unquote uh jobs yeah at the time that I started methodology I was working in a tech company and I had a really nice salary and was basically on this career tr track or trajectory that I would describe as like, I was aspiring to be a COO of a tech company and just to keep working my way up that ladder and be like a Sheryl Sandberg type. Um, but what happened while I was working in tech is I learned during that time period, um, my health had gotten so bad at one point where I was on over 10 different prescription drugs in my twenties. Wow. And my health got so bad that I kind of just gave up on the medicine and started doing my own research because I thought it was very odd that I was so young and had all these health issues. And it just didn't make sense to me because I like used to be healthy and like, why, you know, why am I so sick when I'm in my twenties? And so I did an elimination diet and really changed my diet around and got off 
literally every single drug that I had been on. I was really shocked and disgusted by this because like no doctor ever at any point asked me what my diet was in my whole life. Like, what are you eating? I was, cause I was on drug pills for anti-anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, acne, eczema, like all these things. So I was really shocked by that. And then, you know, I turned my diet around and got, became very, very healthy. And then was doing well in tech, healthy. And, but then I looked around and saw all my friends, like every year as we were getting older, like they were getting unhealthier, right? Because the stuff really starts to add up over time. Yeah. And they didn't know how to eat at all. So I created a nutrition education product for them called The Body Test, which was basically just an eight week email drip where I walked them through an elimination diet you know, this is why, you know, this is why these things work. This is what you're learning about your body, et cetera. And put tons of friends through it. And they learned a lot. Steven, my co-founder is one of the friends I forced to go through that. Um, <laughs> but then what I saw was, so they all felt amazing by the end of it, right? Cause they were, you know, they were eating so many things that they didn't realize they should have been cutting back on. Um, but then six, nine months later, they were failing. And so the insight I had then was, okay, Uh, It's not just that people don't know how to eat. It's like, even once they know, it's so hard with the way the food is in this country to eat that way, right? We're surrounded by, you know, 98% of the choices we're surrounded by are really, really bad for us and are going to make us sick, right? So the world is really, you know, the odds are stacked against us because of the environmental design environment with, you know, the environment that's around us. And so at that point I realized, okay, it's going to take a lot more than education to really help people get their health in good shape through diet and stay that way over the long term. Someone's going to need to really make it so that their home environment on a consistent basis is really, really healthy. And so that was, that's really what methodology is Mm -hmm. thinking behind, like, you know what, you don't even need to know all the nuances of how to eat. You don't even need strong habits or discipline. All you need is every time you open your fridge, if what's in there is healthy, like you know that over the long term, every every meal, every day, like is going to completely turn your life around. And so that's the whole thesis behind the product. And that's one of the reasons why I named it the way I did. It's all about, um, so yeah, Steven, I approached my, one of my best friends at the time, Steven, about the idea. He was excited and just immediately was like, how can I help? And we just started working on it. Before we knew it, you know, it was doing well enough that I quit my job and, and went in all in full time. When I say well enough, by the way, I don't mean like <laughs> making tons of money. Like yeah. I took no salary for like a year and was so stressed out and was the, became the unhealthiest I had ever been. But well enough that I thought that there was something, there was something yeah. in the idea of the demand. Yeah, I love that. So as someone, I'm obviously super familiar with what your menu looks like now and kind of what your offerings look like uh, for your clients now. What did those beginning days of methodology look like? You know, what kind of like uh, supply chain did you have? How are you coming up with recipes? What did that look like? When I think about month one and year one, first of all, we prototyped it. My co-founder moved out of his rent control department and moved into a loft in, in Soma so that we could prototype out of there. Like posted for a chef. And then had the chef show up at a loft to cook, right? Because just to test out the idea. Yeah. And um, in those days, because we were so inefficient and small, we were charging $25 a meal at the time. Meals were fully customizable, meaning a customer could email us and say, I want these exact macros in my meal. And then we would just weigh it out to exactly match that on a per customer basis, uh, which was like ludicrous because there were some men on high protein diets where we were literally giving them, I swear to God, like 10 ounces of shrimp in like a meal container. It was like, everything just looked (laughs) so absurd. It was so inefficient. And, um, interns, we hired interns. Steven is an ingenious off care.com because he realized that these people were really, really nurturing. And so they, they were putting care into the food. So care. We obviously were paying these interns, but these were the interns who would like package the food, do the food deliveries. And so, yeah, in the early days we were just opting out of his loft and it was like, you know, the, the, his neighbors didn't know we were running this business. So when he would grocery shop, Stephen would grocery shop in the middle of the night and then like bring food up through, you know, the emergency, whatever, whatever you know, stairwell and just like smuggle in food several times a week. So year one concepting was 
yeah, it was just really scrappy. Just like, let's get an answer on this. Yeah. Like, are people willing to pay for this? And what was interesting was at $25 a meal, I remember after a couple of months, I was talking to um, the guy who was my boyfriend at, at the time. Uh, and I was like, well, I don't, I still don't know if this, the idea has legs because even though this, our, our friends have been using it for months, you know, they're my friends. And he was like, he was like, Julie, your friends aren't just going to spend hundreds of dollars a month on your, on, on a service just because they're your friend. Like it's actually useful to them. They like it. <laughs> like no one likes you that That's much. That's very Sorry. true. That's very true. I'm like, I don't know that even my best friend would do that for me. <laughs> exactly. So you know, that was what year one looked like. And then the menu was tiny. Then people would order, people couldn't even pick their food at all. Right. It was like, it was like, I managed everything in Microsoft Excel. I had massive spreadsheets that would generate like the label, um, and the nutrition facts and help us calculate what the rules, portioning rules should be. So it was, Oh, it was so janky. And then (laughs) And it was, yeah, it was all on Squarespace. You could subscribe to, I think, five, 10 or 15 meals a week at $25 a meal. Yeah. And then we were pretty much completely whole 30 back then um, because we needed to pick a niche to go after. And then today it's just like, yeah, we have a fully custom built app that customers can shop in, which is why we're able to control the aesthetics of it in a way that we couldn't if we had built on... you know, other apps, like the aesthetics and the user experience, because we have a very weird subscription model, which is, you know, who knows if this was the right strategic decision, but we're one of the only subscription products out there where we auto assign products to you. But then on top of that, you get full edit rights to add and delete exactly what you want with no minimums. Just by operating that way, there are no plug and play solutions for us. So it just required us to build an ent- our own e-commerce app, which is like very expensive, as you can imagine, and hard. Um, but we wanted to give people that level of control. So, you know, so now people shop in an app with photos, and the meals are in you know glass jars and compostable containers. The menu is massive now. We probably had a menu of eight to ten things then, and we probably have a hundred something things on the menu now, and tons of plant-based meals now the world has changed a lot in their interest there um and the meals are a lot more sophisticated now even though they're lower priced yeah just because steven and i have learned so much about food because i now that i'm in the industry i've just decided okay it's basically my full-time job to know more about food you know the aspiration is to know more about food than anyone in the world so we just design better menus now I love that. Um, so what was that process like? Cause you go, you know, again, coming back to this whole, your menu now is so diverse, not just in like, you know, the types of foods, the ingredients you've got. And, you know, like you said, you went from a whole 30 small menu. What was that growing process like in terms of like, Hey, is it a matter of clients seem to be really liking this recipe or like this dish? Do we make more like that and grow the menu that way? How much of it was like, your chef and your personal vision of like what these dinners would look like and what these meals would look like. Um, and kind of also, you know, as you said, now you're leaning a lot more plant-based. Like a lot of that is also based on trends. What was that process of like, the world is changing. Our clients are growing. My vision is changing as well. How does that all kind of culminate together? Yeah, it's a constant evolution and a constant balance between learning what customers want, like the kinds of foods they want to eat, but also I'm always just trying to push people like a little bit out of their comfort zone to try new dishes, to experiment with new ways of eating. So for example, this year we drastically reformulated a lot of our recipes because I wanted us to increase the plant variety in every meal. So there's like a key metric that we need to hit where every meal needs to have like a minimum of a certain number of like literally fruits, vegetables, Mm plant-based ingredients in it so that our customers would get a more nourishing meal and just great, all the longevity benefits that come from like eating across the full spectrum. And um, even though that's not something our customers have ever asked for, right? So like talking to them, they wouldn't know that because they just, a lot of people haven't taken the time to really learn and read and understand the impact of eating a diverse diet. Um, so some of it is, you know, give people familiar concepts that they want. So let's say they say turkey chili, something very familiar. You read it, you know what it is. So balance that, take that concept, but then insert in all the things yeah. that I aspire for them to eat, even though they don't value it yet. 
Um, but then they will. So it's great because they, you know, they're open-minded. They, they try things over time and they're like, wow, they're always surprised to learn this plant-based meal tastes delicious. Or now that my fiber is higher, like I'm more regular and whatever benefits come with that. So um, it's a constant evolution. So a lot of it is based on, yeah, consumer taste. More and more customers are wanting to cut back on meat and seafood now. It, we've seen it grow steadily every year. It's still not like the way the media portrays it. The yeah. media makes it look like everyone is eating plant-based, but that's just not what we see in our volume. It still looks like people are kind of just dipping their toe in that. Mm -hmm. So balancing that with just me constantly learning, you know, about new nutrition research findings and figuring out how do we weave these into our into our menu. And even if customers don't know the details of it, um, I still know they're getting the health benefit. It's just a matter of just doing what's best for them. Obviously I'm trying to teach them as well because yeah. we want them to know and to be able to do this on their own. But um, you know, sometimes it takes a while for people to appreciate some of the things we do for them. And I think what something else that's really cool, especially about y'all is, you know, I've tried my fair share of like meal solution options. A lot of them don't really foray into this like diverse global lens that y'all also take. And I think what's really cool about you guys is that oftentimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are oftentimes the first like introductory point for a lot of ingredients or cuisines for your clients. Um, so I'm curious kind of how you feel like your place in that introductory phases to someone maybe trying um, like Japanese food for the first time, or I know you um, created some Oaxacan style um, meal solutions after your trip, right? So it's like, how do you feel like your responsibility comes into place when it's like, hey, I'm also introducing people to a new cuisine or a new ingredient that they may have never seen before. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that introducing the people to new cuisines, there are so many reasons why it's so important for me to do. And, um, and it's a hard thing to do for several reasons. Like, you know, at a high level, often we do get emails where they're like, why is this email, why is this menu so Asian all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> like the, so I'm just setting that as context yeah, so you yeah. can understand why when you go out to health food restaurants it often isn't global because that's actually not what most people prefer mm -hmm. to eat they want like when I say American you know quote unquote American really means like American Italian French you know yeah. those kinds of things um so that's the context of the world we're operating in but why I think it's important to introduce these things introducing people to new flavor profiles and dishes is just really important because if, you know, whether you like those dishes or not to start with, like the more healthy dishes we fall in love with, the easier it is to eat healthy. So kind of the way I think about it is, let's say, let's say today, you know, there are 300 unhealthy dishes you love and there are 50 healthy dishes you love. Like how hard, think about how hard it is to eat healthy. But if you flip that ratio over time or in, and just expand your palate, and what you're familiar with that you know you love that's healthy, then it just becomes so much easier yeah. because you just have so many more options, right? So I always want to kind of expand kind of like people's palate, the repertoire of what they can yeah. eat, right? So that they have this longer list of things they can draw from when they feel like eating healthy. So it's kind of like those twofold ideas. Yeah. Do you feel like people, you know, and you can tell me if you've noticed this change over time. I think it was really interesting. I was speaking to um, Mary Co Carpenter, she's like the VP of like community at Nielsen. And she said something really funny that I was on the phone with her and, uh, she and her daughter, her daughter's friend was over for lunch and they had asked her to make ramen. Her daughter's friend was white. And she was like, this would have never happened if when I was growing up, my white friends were always looking for the chips and they were like, where your normal, where's your normal food? Um, and yeah. she's like, and she, that, that she called out that she's like, this is normal now. Like people's palates have grown mm -hmm. and changed like have you noticed that same enthusiasm over the years for like hey I want more different kinds mm -hmm. of cuisines like not just for the health factor but because people are more open to it yeah definitely I think the explosion that we've seen in food related programming on yeah. platforms yeah. like Netflix plus Instagram like I can learn about food from all over the world from my home just on Instagram by finding the right accounts to follow right so yeah yeah, people and then traveling just for food. They're called gastronauts. It's like a, a thing that people aspire to now. So yeah, I think it's it's definitely almost like 
no, eat, being able to eat food from different cultures is almost, it, it's almost like something that you have to be able to do to be considered cultured. Yeah. These days, uh, you know, as part of that checklist. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's very aspirational for people. And um, at least on the coast, I can't speak for the middle of America, but on the, you know, here on the West coast, yeah, I've definitely seen, there's a huge appetite for adventurous food and we attract the kind of person who wants that. Like yeah. the kind of person who really just wants quote unquote American food cancels our service pretty quickly because they're just like, <laughs> they log in and they see all these, yeah, these crazy dishes from around the world that they don't recognize. And you know, if that scares them, they don't stay with us long, but that's okay with us. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, you bring up a really great point that I'm really excited to chat with you about um, because I do consider you a what do you call it? Like a semi-gastronaut? Because you did pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, um, you did travel a lot and you did go and, you know, see see the world and see the world through the lens of food. And I think it's, it's so inspiring to see other people um, not just go places, but like learn about those places and share the knowledge behind the food and the people and that the history um, that's of these places. And I know you mentioned earlier too that you just really love learning. So like, I would love to just hear your perspective on like, what is, what is that journey like for you? What is it that draws you um, to like travel and learning about different cultures and like sharing that back with your audience and your clients? Yeah, I think when I started this business, I had this aspiration, one aspiration to just try to know more about food than anyone else in the world, knowing that I would never actually accomplish that goal. And so I wanted to be strategic about it because something like that just doesn't happen by accident. And I believe I, there, I have to build into my schedule habits that I do on a daily basis so that I can move towards that every day. And so I made a list of all the different ways that I can learn about food. So it's tasting new food, cooking food, reading about food, you know, talking to people in the food industry, watching food type documentaries. And so in my bucket of tasting food, I intentionally set aside time of like, okay, when I'm in town, I'm going to try this number of new restaurants a week. And then I had a goal for myself to hit at least one new country every quarter, right? To experience food from a new culture. So that travel kind of fell under that larger umbrella. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised how aspirational it was for people. Like that's some of the favorite content on methodology whenever I do that. And I didn't expect people to enjoy it that much. And Cause you, I don't know if you saw, like I would literally upload the maximum number of stories yeah. every day. Like, Here's Instagram the thing. Normally it's annoying when people do that. And then I'd always like refresh. I'm like, where's the next story? Like I need the next one. <laughs> so yeah, I was shocked. And I'm shocked how many people watch all the way through and they would tell me it was almost like a TV show for them. Cause yeah. it, was, it was 20 minutes. I think, I think 20 minutes is like the max content you can do in stories. And I was surprised by it. And it was interesting hearing the feedback. Yeah. Cause they felt like they were learning. Um, I was also surprised. I thought nothing of it. People thought it was so unusual for a woman to travel abroad alone, which I was doing, right? And then just being will willing to literally taste any food. Yeah. I thought nothing of. Um, so, yeah, so it was just interesting getting that kind of feedback. But going, yeah, immersing myself in a new culture, trying food on the ground, learning from local experts. It's so fun. I just... Yeah, I feel blessed that I'm able to do it. And of course I want to share that knowledge back because I know that I know that I'm blessed and that most people will never get to do even one of those trips where I get to do yeah. where I literally for work eat all day on the company dime, you know, get to talk to local experts, right? Um, and so that's why I want to share it. I want and the way I share stories is like very intentional. Um, the, when I film, the way I film, I intentionally try to film my stories, you know, from angles and create enough content that I want all the followers to feel like they're actually physically there with me on the trip. Like I really strategically, like where I put my camera, you know, where and when and film, how often I film. Like I, I want, I really want you to feel like you're able to sit there with me. Um, Cause to me, that's like, you know, one of the nicest things that I can do for them yeah. if they can't do this trip themselves, even though that like, Frankly, it very much detracts from my experience, like in the moment, like the yeah. payoff is all worth it. So it's not like, oh my God, I have to do this. It's like well worth it. But it's like, and this is why I travel alone and eat alone actually, because like I can't create an experience where our followers feel like they're with me if I'm actually with someone else at the, at the dinner table. So most of the time when I'm doing this food research, whether it's traveling or even here locally, like 
I will go out alone, you know, order a whole table of food, you know, film. And I'm just alone because when I'm with a dining companion, they expect me to pay attention to them. You know, and then they talk when I'm filming yeah. all the yeah. time. It's like, can you see me trying to work? You know, so it's like, anyways. Um, so I, yeah, I love, yeah, I love creating. And I think that um, I really aspire to show people, uh, to really make sure people are learning from the account things that they don't hear elsewhere. So before I go to a country to prepare, like, like when I went to Japan, I not only read cookbooks throughout the region, but I also mm -hmm. read history books. Like I literally read an entire history book on the history of Okinawa, right? To make sure that when I went into that, I had the full context of what was a very complex relationship between Okinawans and Japan and, mm -hmm. and the Japanese people, right? So I had that full context knowing that you know, they didn't really want to become a part of Japan, right? And that they were like forced to give up their language. And so the context of them trying to really hold on to their culinary traditions and their dishes and, and really like these are Okinawan dishes, not Japanese dishes and really look out for, you know, what really is Okinawan versus what is something we would lump into Japanese food. Like I only could pick up on those nuances because I took the time to read the boring ass fucking history book, you know? And so I study... I, I study very, very deeply before I create content yeah. because I really try to not, I hate, you know, I just, I don't, I really don't want to just say what everyone else is saying. And I really want people to, to learn something that's going to open their eyes. Yeah. I feel like that's also just like such a responsible thing to do because, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, we see just the way that people consume travel on social media and it's like, you're just doing it for that one moment. Whereas like what I love about your method of doing it is like, you're putting in the time and the respect for that culture and that place and its history to like really fully understand what makes it what it is and why it's important. Um, and I think that, you know, as someone who does watch those travel stories, like it, it does make you kind of realize how important like that place is. And like the amount of stuff that I've learned from your um, travel posts is just incredible because then I'm like, oh, like. I don't want to go there just because it's Instagrammable. I want to go and learn about the culture and the people behind it. And I think that's just so important. And, you know, as we look forward past whenever this crazy time in the world ends, where it's like, when we do all kind of flock back to this travel, travel world, how do we continue to do that in a responsible way? So I, I just love hearing that. Um, and I'm also such a big proponent for solo travel. I don't know why for some people, some people, they just need travel companions, but I've done so many solo trips and I'm like, those are the best ones. They're totally yes. the best ones. I'm so happy to hear that you're a proponent of it. And I think it's just, I think it just takes people like us showing and sharing yeah. the experience and, and possibly even you just gave me an idea. I think safety tips, right? I think a lot of the time when women don't want to travel alone, they really think yeah. it's unsafe. So really sharing very explicitly the things that I do and don't do. Cause you know, I admit like when I travel alone, people probably don't notice this on the feed, but like, I don't go out after sunset actually. I like yes, really that's a big one. Someone once asked and I was like, well, I'm usually back at the hotel by like eight thirty nine. Like that's usually <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like not out late. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that there's more that can be done. Cause I agree. There's so much to gain from the solo travel and, and it's crazy. You probably experienced this, how kind people are when yes. a woman is traveling alone. Yeah it's other cultures are so much friendlier than ours. Like I feel so taken care of. And it's, and if you just look, Google in the press, like some of these cities, they, these articles make it sound like you're in such dangerous places. But like when I actually traveled to these places, I was like, uh, people here are way nicer to me yeah. than they are in LA. <laughs> like, totally, in LA, totally. when I lost, they're like, get out of my way, open a map. <laughs> like, why are you standing yeah. in my way being abused? And yeah. So. It's also really cool. I know I've at least noticed this. I don't know if you have where it's like, I'm more apt to speak to strangers when I'm traveling alone in a new place. And it's like the people I've met, incredible. And it's like the people and stories you get to know, that's just like, that's more than half the fun of going on a trip by yourself. Exactly. Way more likely to meet people. People are way more likely to come up to you. And then you know, one thing that I've found is when you just really relish in local food, like really relish in it, the locals feel so proud and happy seeing that. Yeah. It's really, really touching. Even when there's like a full language barrier, it's just really sweet seeing how proud they are. Yeah. Of their local food. So, um, that's just one of my favorite moments when I travel, just at a taco stand, 
making eye contact with you know all the people around me and they're just seeing you know they're so happy seeing me go to town and yeah i love it yeah I, for those. I love that and i just love that you share those experiences with everyone that um follows on social because they really are really special um on that note too you know as you're going and you're traveling and trying these different cuisines and different recipes how does that kind of like kickstart thoughts for you as to like how do i bring this back to methodology and like um i know speaking of your time in Okinawa, like I know you added the Okinawan uh, brown sugar. You totally turned me on to that. I'm obsessed with it. It's so good. Um, what does that process look like where, hey, I went to this place, loved XYZ. How do I bring this to my clients at Methodology? That's a good question. Sometimes there are things where I immediately want to push things in the menu, but the way menu design works for us is, at least the way it is today, is you know, Stephen and I spend, I'm not even kidding you, at least 12 hours a week on the phone together, just talking about concepts at a really high level. And, um, and so when we come up with concepts and it's always us going back and forth and constantly refining and making it better. So we can talk for two hours about one breakfast concept, right? In those conversations, each of us is drawing from the full depth of our culinary experience, like everything we've eaten, right? Everything, every cookbook we've read, et cetera. And so, um, it's less about like, I got back from a trip and I'm going to write things in the menu. It's just, I'm constantly building this mental database of textures, mm -hmm. you know, look, the look of things. Sometimes we add things, we, we, you know, we need a certain look, like the way things are cut, right? Uh, where a piece of produce is cut. So the look, textures, flavors, things like that. Um, the larger that database is the better. So sometimes it's, I might see something like, okay, a restaurant in LA, they it's spoon by age why does their risotto taste so good it tastes so good because she uses kimchi okay so why is it that kimchi makes a risotto taste good so then i sit back and think about it okay kimchi has a very umami flavor so it's adding like a depth of flavor you know to a risotto that's like way deeper than what you could get like without that and so the learning for me is okay i can take a dish add umami from another culture an ingredient umami ingredient from another culture and um and it'll give it a whole new dimension that no one has ever tasted it before and they'll like it and they won't know why. And so when I sit down and make a risotto dish, then I go through my mental database and say, okay, risotto Italian, where might it be fun to pull an umami flavor point out of? And so then my, my brain starts scanning for all the umami things I've tasted around the world outside of Italy. And so I might say, okay, shio koji from Japan, interesting. Um, what about miso? Okay, um, you know, when I was in Spain, what about some of the salted fish? Like things like that. So it's 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 often not like sitting down and pulling something directly it's just building on this database of ingredients the way things are combined and uh, breaking them down into first principle thinking and, and kind of building from scratch as we create the menu every week i love that have you ever put something out there that you were really excited about and then people's reactions were were not what you were expecting oh all the time this is why well her menu changes every week because a lot of times Steven and I think something's going to be a big hit. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember off the top of my head, which things they are. I think often it ends up falling into the category of just way too unfamiliar for them. Yeah. Because he and I have such a breadth of eating experience. And so it's like way too unfamiliar. Um, and then, and then, but sometimes they surprise me. Like we currently have on the menu, uh, you know, Peruvian ex-Japanese type inspired poke bowl. Um, and, you know, I'm getting tech every, every week it's on the menu. I get tons of text messages from friends saying they love it. And I just, I thought maybe that one might be a bit too foreign a Nikkei style bowl, but they loved it. Uh, so it's, it's so hard to know, like even now, six years in, like, I don't really know which ones will really be a hit. My success rate is definitely higher than it was in year one with concepts. Um, but sometimes we're, yeah, sometimes we're off. Yeah. Constantly so. kind of learning and evolving, um, you know, with the way of the world. And I think, uh, kind of going into this idea of, you know, this, this year especially has challenged us all in a lot of different ways. I'm curious kind of, you know, because you do just embody this idea of a learning mindset and, um, you know, constantly having to evolve and change is, how have you kind of dealt with the challenges that this year has thrown at us, especially, you know, given the, the environment that you're operating in, you know, the supply chain you have to work with, you know, you have 
you know, a team of people coming together to create your menus and your food and kind of how has this year impacted y'all as a business and personally and kind of how has that gone for you? Yeah, I, I'm sure for every every business as total had to completely <laughs> yeah. rethink the way they operate, including us. And um, I mean, at the the biggest change we had to make was definitely at the supply chain level. We had to build a stronger supply chain with multiple contingencies at every key point because of any teams that could go down related to COVID, whether it's our team or any of our partners, like anyone in the supply chain before us or after us, right? So we just needed to install multiple contingencies across the entire supply chain. And that took so much work that we even had to close, which we've never done before, just close down one week, just make all the changes and get everything in order. And then like flip the switch and turn ourselves back on again. And um, so that was really, really painful and cost a ton of money and like frankly almost bankrupt us, but we felt like we had no choice because we needed to do it to build a stronger and safer supply chain for our employees as well. And um, so that, yeah, so that change happened and, but now the supply chain is stronger than ever before, right? Because COVID happened, but other crazy stuff could also happen in future yeah. years. And so now, because we've had to deal with something so hard, I feel like, uh, because other than that, I just can't even imagine like what you could throw at our supply chain that would be harder to deal with than COVID. Um, so all of that happened and we were in survival mode for a while. Just like, how do you just keep this business going when every day feels so hard? Um, and then now we have our routine in place and know that we're probably still going to be in a COVID world through 2021 as well until yeah. really there are tons of vaccines distributed and yeah so it's weird we're we're operating even more nimbly now than we used to where uh we just really have to constantly be on our toes about things that might come up related to COVID and how they might affect the business and um I think that's a good thing and then we also have to manage our finances even more carefully now right it's just because it's just more expensive to operate now. And then when things, unexpected things happen, you have to fix those problems that cost money. So um, it's, it's really just forced us to build a much stronger business. Cause yeah, when yeah. problems are thrown at a business's way, you're either gonna step up, fix it and get stronger or you're gonna go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess, you know, even looking forward, you know, as we see this time continue a little bit longer, um, how are you thinking about like your menu offerings? How are you thinking about like the kind of food people want to eat during a time like this and, you know, moving forward, how do you think about bringing that together for someone? Yeah, that's a good question. It's such a tricky thing, designing the menu because we have, you know, all of our customers come to us because they're busy and they want high quality food, but then they have such different goals right? Um, we have customers who come to us specifically for weight loss, right? We have customers uh, who like are trying to gain weight on the opposite of the spectrum or people who just like, they don't even care about that stuff. They just want the yummiest thing. So the menu always kind of needs to have something for, for everyone, a little, you know, a couple things for everyone. And obviously as many meals as possible to try to check as many boxes as possible for our different segments. Uh, but like right now, as far as what kinds of foods people want, we're seeing there have been waves. So it's like when COVID first, when COVID first hit, people really wanted comfort food because they were super stressed out. So then there was a couple of months into COVID, uh, tons of demand for just bring the calories down, right? Because um, I've gained tons of weight. And then now moving into the holidays, you know, it was a crazy thing. When, when we concepted our Thanksgiving menu, we, this is our first year doing a Thanksgiving menu. We had no idea how like healthy versus junky people would mm -hmm. want it to be. And and we had to make the call early because we, we published in advance, we test in advance and we made the wrong call. Like <laughs> I think the menu was way healthier than it needed to be because like literally the top selling item is like our unhealthiest item. It has, <laughs> it's, it has like actual cheese in it, which we normally never use. So it, it's the wild mushroom and Gruyere croissant stuffing was our best seller. And I was like, oh, okay. So like, I guess like during the holidays, I get it. So like, in, in, you know, over the holidays, we want adults. So in December, we're going to have a very, you know, the menu will be more comforting, a little bit more indulgent than usual. Our holiday menu, based on what we learned for Thanksgiving, you know, the Christmas menu is just going to like really lean into indulgence. And then I know what people want Jan 1, like 
<laughs> we're going to be extremely healthy, right? Like none of that stuff starting Gen 1 because everyone's going to want to get back on track starting then. And so the menu needs to be very, this is the funny thing. Like our whole menu is like extremely, extremely healthy. Um, like no matter what the meal is, we have like minimum requirements on like fiber, number of veggies, like the veggie servings, calorie constraints and all that. So like I stand behind every meal on the menu as being healthy actually. But the funny thing is people perceive some meals to be as healthier, healthier or not because they don't know all the swaps that we make a standard size meal down. Like our short rib risotto dish, it has like 500 calories because of all the interesting swaps that we've made. Right. Um, well, before we wrap up, I did want to ask one more question because I, um, I just thought this was really interesting when you did it earlier this year, um, you went on a consumption diet. Um, and I don't want to like misuse the term diet in this case, um, because it has several different meanings. So I would love to just kind of learn about what that experience was, especially as, you know, we all, I think the last couple of weeks went on, we're on consumption overload, um, with the media and food and just everything. Right. So I would love to know, um, you know, as, again, we kind of try to be more mindful with how we're consuming everything around us. Um, how our listeners and myself, we can all learn from your experience with that. Yeah, that was July, like going in. So at the end of June, going into July, we had already been on lockdown for a while. And I was just feeling so depressed and so unhealthy. Like I like physically felt unhealthy. I felt very disconnected from our mission um, because I had just really been off my diet. Like I still eat, of course, tons of methodology every week because it's coming in, but I was getting tons of takeout. Um, social media was just like, there were just, I feel like there were so many takedowns and negative, yeah. there's just so yeah. much negative negativity. People were being mean, even to well-intentioned people constantly. So I was like even afraid to post during that time or be on stories. So I just felt like I needed like to clear out space in my life and, um, and make room for other things and really like figure out like, what do I need in my life? So yeah, I cut out tons of things. It's, it's on the blog. It's stuff like everything, easy things from like caffeine, refined grain, refined sugar, which I know I knew from my own personal experience, those things make me feel really unhealthy and, um, everything from things like that to, yeah, I, I was off social media. Um, I was and just all media too. Like I literally told my cousin and best friend, Abby and Will, like if something big happens in the news, text me. Otherwise, like I'm not even reading any news. <laughs> uh, no weird TV shows or anything. Yeah, I just cut back on everything. And so I was literally only interacting with coworkers, friends and family. And that was it for an entire month. And it was just crazy to see from, you know, cutting, cutting out all the unhealthy food and basically just eating methodology, cutting out all the takeout, interacting with just friends and family, using all my free time that I opened up every night to start. I was just reading again. I was literally reading for hours a day. Like, turns out when you're not Instagram, you can easily read for four hours a day. Exactly. So then I, the crazy thing is I started reading all of the latest, not just always the latest, but all these nutrition books that had been in my queue that I just hadn't gotten to. And so many of the books were so eye-opening to me, especially all the stuff on, um, like, I feel like I re I, I read so many nutrition books that month that I feel like I, I understand nutrition at a level now that I think that where I could explain, and I have to do a video on this. I feel like I could explain like nutrition 101 to a lay person in a way that would like really help them understand what happens to food from the moment you eat it um, to the moment it becomes the building blocks throughout your body and like what it really means to eat for anti-cancer. What does it really mean to eat for gut health? Like obviously nothing beyond what the science has proven, but I feel like I really, because of how much I read and how much time I spent something understood it at a depth that I just hadn't before. And, and it, and it made me so motivated. It put me in touch with the mission again. I was so fired up by the end and it was just, yeah, it was just a crazy, like I felt like a totally different woman at the end of 30 days than I did before it. And so there's like almost nothing I could recommend more for anyone listening to this podcast. If you're going to do have one takeaway, you know, make a list of things that you're just going to cut out of your life for one month religiously and just see where you land at the end of the month. It's like the benefits I had were just so unexpected. Um, like I didn't expect, I just didn't even realize how quickly my health would turn around. Like I cut out meat and seafood for the first time in my life for, or not for, I had done vegan before, but it'd been a really long time. Um, and I was just shocked by, yeah, how good I felt afterwards. So 
before we jump into our rapid fire questions, I just want to ask, like, where, where do you see methodology going in the next year? Short term, long term? What kind of are you wanting to continue focusing on? Oh, that's a great question. We, with the current product, we continue to want to just improve the menu in every possible way. I feel like every year we get better because we're so close to our customers at coming up with concepts that they love more and then just improving our ability to execute on those concepts well at scale. Like it's one thing to create a recipe that tastes and looks perfect during our R&D session, but to create hundreds, thousands of those that all look and taste the same, that's really really, really hard. <laughs> so just constantly getting better at that. But then we're, we're exploring a bunch of really exciting new things like um, new, new product launches in the, I guess you would call it like snack food space, like things that can ship nationwide really easily. So we've never really played in the mass market space before, um, but try to launch a few things that are mass market, still following the principles and, yeah. and keeping our values intact, but really try to create solutions for people who can't afford the current product. So that stuff is on the docket. And then I'm pretty seriously exploring cloud kitchens because they reach out to us all the time, wanting us to launch in new markets. So um, that could be something that uh, we really look into next year because I would love to be on the East coast as well. Um, and then the third thing that's on my mind a lot is I really want to start working on a methodology cookbook, oh, um, under the same lens that I mentioned before, where I just, I want our quote unquote methodology of cooking to be accessible to more people. Yeah. And I just love the idea of chefs, home chefs learning how to cook the way we do, because I honestly think there are, there's no other company in the world that's better than we are at taking a super unhealthy, but delicious recipe and making it healthy like all of the creative swaps that we've learned how to make. Um, I don't think anyone has a larger database of swaps like that. And I think it, if people can learn these things, they can eat their favorite foods at home, never feel deprived. And that's going to be the key to eating this way long-term. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. And I love that you're like, I want to share this with the world rather than like hoarding it for yourself. Like I always think of all birds where, you know, they're like, we've got this great technology for a sustainable product for everyone. Like we will share it with you. Like, how do we get this out into the world so that we can change other people's mindsets too? And I think that's really powerful. You know, I will be first in line to buy a methodology cookbook. So I'm super excited and I will await the day patiently that that comes out. Oh my God, I can't wait. Your, your content is so beautiful. I can't wait to see you cook a methodology dish and photograph it. You are too kind. Um, well, I hope you're excited. People either groan or are excited about rapid fire questions. It's either one or the other. So, you know, we'll find out which one you are. Um, the first question is an easy one. How do you take your tea? Oh, it's just matcha, nothing added. Love it. Classic. Just nice and simple. Uh, who is someone you really admire? I really admire my dad more than anyone else in the world because despite the fact that he's never read a spiritual book in his life, I find him to be the most spiritual human being I've ever met because what he's learned and what he's a living model for me for is that what really matters in life is just being at peace. So he's never gotten caught up in the rat race of how much money do I make? How do I move up the career ladder and all of that? And has just always focused on the relationships with those around him. And just as that peace, no matter what happens in his life, like his house burned down and he was like, well, it happened. There's nothing I can do about it. Like when, when negative things happen in his life, it's crazy the way this man takes it right? Like no matter what happens, he's just at peace. And he even said when he got COVID, he's like, I'm okay if I die. Like I've had a great life. So nothing inspires me more than that, especially living in here in LA. It's just so easy to get caught up in like how much money you make. Look at my custom built home. Look at my designer wardrobe and all this other bullshit. How many followers do I have on Instagram? And to really feel like you're not enough and to not feel at peace. And, you know, no matter how much you move up in those areas to still not feel at peace. So, um, I'm not remotely where he is today. <laughs> like I, like, I know, uh, that I still chase after things that I shouldn't be. Um, and that's why I try to spend time with him every week. Cause it, it just grounds me and reminds me like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, the, for me, like if I just aspire to have peace, <laughs> right. Then like, then I'm just always at peace. And that's just a better feeling than like anything else that life could bring me. Um, what is something that you really love about yourself? God, this is going to be bad if I can't answer it quickly. Huh? Everyone's gonna think really low <laughs> this is the one that trips people up. And I'm like, it, and I'm, that's why I'm like, I hope by asking this question more often, people will think about it more often because it really is the one that gives people pause. 
Yeah, I think it's probably like my insatiable uh, desire and ability to just keep learning at an extremely, you know, just the sheer volume of information I'm able to take in because I care about, because I love it. Um, that's probably what I love most about myself because it, yeah, it, it empowers me to just be more effective in all the areas of my life. I love that. That's a good one. Uh, what is a book you would recommend? The book, <laughs> I'm going to pick a nutrition book. I don't, I'm torn. So I'm going to have to pick two, but for different reasons. If you, because people probably want to hear this from me. If you're going to read one nutrition book this year, I would read Fiber Fueled. Okay. Um, Cause I think that author, um, he's a gastroenterologist. He explains better in layman's terms, better than anyone else, how you should eat for optimal gut health and why it matters. And in, in, in a way that because you understand it, you're actually going to be motivated to change your diet. So I think that's the best nutrition book that's come out recently. And then the other book that I'm going to recommend is the book that I read over and over most often in my life. It's called Awareness by Anthony DeMello. So it's a spiritual book. And so whenever I I'm going through a really, really hard time or really struggling with an area of my life, I kind of go back to the highlights in that book uh, that really remind me that what I'm trying to do every year in life is not which is kind of the opposite of what I said, like there's learning, but it's really like unlearning, right? Like unlearning all these, this bullshit that society teaches you, you should care about, right? And really get in touch with what are the things that I really value. Uh, so whenever I'm going through a hard time, I reach for that book and it brings me a lot of peace. Awesome. Adding to the checkout list uh, right after we're done. <laughs> um, if you could have one skill or talent that you don't currently, what would it be? Oh my God, shoot. It's going to be so hard to pick. Um, this is going to sound really bad coming from a food founder, Cody, but I, I wish I could cook well. <laughs> I'm a horrible, I'm a horrible home. I'm a horrible home cook. Like I like visually remember like the facial expressions ex-boyfriends have made when they've eaten my food. And it's just like, you know, I just, why I won't even cook for dinner parties anymore. I'm too self-conscious to cook for other people. And, um, yeah, I just feel like I could, and, and one of the reasons why I care about it is just cause like, if, if I were good at it, I feel like I could teach our followers yeah. how to do it. Uh, but I'm so bad at it. I can't really be helpful to them. Um, and I think it's a really cool skill, but for some reason, you know, I was just helping my dad last weekend, you know, we were making hand rolls and he just like, couldn't believe how bad I was. <laughs> He's like, you, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Despite my efforts, yeah, I think it would be really cool if I were like a badass chef. <laughs> Until then, you can serve everyone methodology. Exactly. <laughs> um, last one. What is something you're curious about right now? Um, what is something I'm really curious about? I'm studying a lot of things right now. The thing that I'm probably spending the most time studying is... Um, the, the more, yeah, one of the things I'm spending the most time studying is why certain brands really, really take off um, and others don't. Um, and how, and specifically how those effective brands use media and what is compelling about that media. So, you know, the way I do this, because I don't feel like there's like, I've read books that have attempted to explain this and I don't really feel like I got anything useful out of them. So, I'm frankly just spending a lot of time doing things like watching every episode of the Kardashians from season one and really trying to retrace the history of their the true power of marketing them. right there. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I do things like that. Um, and just really like, yeah, so I'm just really trying to dissect some of the players who have clearly mastered a lot of this and seeing what principles I can take away and apply to our brand. Um, cause I guess the thing that I've realized six years into running the business and just seeing who has really taken off and who hasn't, it's not in America the best product that wins a space. It's the product that people find out about first that's like meets some minimum quality standard. And the way I've built my business up till now is I've literally put all my effort into making the best possible product. And I've realized as a founder now that I need to spend more time figuring out creative ways to get more eyeballs through really good content and things like that. Um, which kind of sucks. So I'd rather just spend all my time on product, but the reality of this world is, you know, the, the products that get used the most are the ones that figure out this media game and it's not necessarily the best product in the space. 
Yeah. Constant learning process. I love that. Uh, well, where can people find you? Where can people find methodology? What links and places do people need to know about? They can go to our website at www.gomethodology.com. They can follow us on Instagram at gomethodology. And if you're not in our delivery zone, you can actually go to shop.gomethodology.com to get our pantry items. I do have to put in a plug. Is the ceremonial cacao going to be put back in stock? Because y'all have got me hooked on it from the shop methodology and I need it soon yeah. in my life. Yeah. We're going to actually, we were just talking as a team. I'm making sure we have like three versions of that product. So we're going to make sure we have like the, the morning's mastered version. That's tastes kind of like Mexican chocolate. The, the lion's mane one that just tastes like Swiss miss. And then like the plain one for people who just want to be hardcore. So we'll make sure yeah. all three of those are on the menu. <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, yay. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks so much for joining us on the pod. Of course. You're welcome. It was fun. Thank y'all so much for listening to today's episode. If you're interested in following along with Julie and methodology, you can find more information at gomethodology.com. And if you are outside their delivery area, you can shop their pantry items, including the cocoa mix from shop.gomethodology.com. And you can also follow methodology on Instagram at gomethodology. Thanks again for listening and we'll see y'all next time.